Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Three years to the day after my total, complete meltdown, I was standing on stage at the Mr. Universe in Mumbai, India, representing my country. And I was like, wow, this, this really works. When you get rigid and you become dogmatic in your belief and your methodologies, you, you, stand, you tend to stop paying attention to the red lights going off in your life. Right now, it's the heady days, you know, it's going up at this exponential rate and virtually anybody, you know, gets in and they're like, I've made 200% or 300% or 500% or a thousand percent last year, whatever it happens to be. And, and what happens is, is greed can cause a loss of perspective. And so one of the things that I have learned to develop is to look at diet or look at training or look at anything and, and, and stop seeing the differences, but let's look at the commonalities. And I discover essentially it's a drug cult. The whole thing is a, is, a, is a drug culture. At the end of the day, humans evolve and contribute by adding value to other people. What's up, folks? Xavier Katani here. You're listening to The Human Experience. And wow, what an amazing episode with Mr. Wade Lightheart. Wade is a three-time Canadian all-natural national bodybuilding champion. He's a nutrition coach. He has explored health. He's explored fitness. He's explored consciousness and even cryptocurrency. So we talk about all of those things in this episode. Wade is a friend of mine and I was so glad to do this episode with him and there's so much information on just meditation, connecting with yourself, being able to free yourself from the matrix and travel and live the life that you want. So I really hope that you guys enjoy this episode. It was a really fun one. Thank you guys so much for listening. The human experience is in session. My guest for today is Mr. Wade Lightheart. Wade, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Xavier. Thank you for having me. So Wade, we've been friends for a couple years and we met at a biohacking conference a couple years ago. We talked about a bunch of different things. And, you know, I, I know you as having different facets of your life and traveling wealthy backpacker, but people might not know who you are. So if you could just give everyone listening a sort of background of what you do, who you are for the audience, please. Well, thanks. You know, I, I like to think that I'm an ordinary kind of person that just stumbled into an extraordinary life, but uh, I feel grateful is the the prime thing, but it's like everyone else, we all have that challenges. But if I can try and make a long story short, you know, I grew up in Canada, in Northern Canada. I was, did all the normal things that kids do, play hockey and stuff. And then um, had a transformational experience at 15 with my sister's, uh, you know, diagnosis of cancer. And we can talk about that a little bit. Hmm. And I went to study exercise physiology at the University of New Brunswick um, because I was looking at ways of improving my own performance and health. That led to a career in the health and fitness industry um, and also a career of kind of traveling. I got into traveling. You know, my first plane ride was literally 22 and I got hooked on it. And after that, I, I just kind of went crazy. Uh, and that, you know, brought me to a lot of things, you know, as everything from hanging out with meditation masters in India and you know, doing shamanic sessions with people and standing on stage in front of 4,000 people giving a talk on health and I, had the good fortune of being one of the only vegetarians to compete in both the Mr. Universe and the Natural Mr. Olympia. Hmm. And yeah, it's it's kind of the the 411 and then you know I got into the online space. I had a friend 
was making money online and I couldn't believe that you could. I, I thought he was crazy. At that time, I had given up my computer and all my electronics because I was living kind of like a, a personal trainer as a monastic <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> and uh, we started a business and moved to uh, Panama in 2005 because it started taking off. And uh, from there, I think I spent about seven years kind of traveling the world, living the lifestyle. And I always, I always joke around. I said, I wish I had a read Tim Ferriss's book before <laughs> I started. Like, I needed, like, he didn't write that soon enough because uh, what he outlined in that book sort of said, yeah, I wish I had known that at first because I had to learn everything the hard way. And then now today, I just uh, work on a variety of projects. I have a nutritional company which focuses on fixing digestion because it's such a big issue. I have an online business called The Wealthy Backpacker, which is teaching people about online business and how to live in the digital republic, the new, the new world that has emerged that um, has, is changing everything. It's changing countries, it's changing boundaries, it's changing work, and this evolution is going to you know, continue to accelerate, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to get into that with you. You're also an author. You co-wrote a book called Staying Alive in a Toxic World. You also won, was it Mr. Canada that you won three yeah, times? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, three times. Wow. I mean, that's that's quite an achievement, man. I mean, so, you know, what do you find yourself doing the most in your day? What do you think is taking the most of your management skills? What are you spending the most time on right now? Well, you know, anything that I feel that will contribute and raise the consciousness of humanity, whether that's helping people have more resources, whether that's improving people's health, while it's just sharing tips about, you know, some great spiritual stuff that I've run into. I mean, that's that's always the driver behind everything I do, if you, if you understand. If it's in those line, lanes, I'm excited about it. I want to do it. If it's not in those lanes, I don't have the energy or motivation or, or, or really the interest because I'm just, I'm on the planet to try and evolve the best that I can. And by doing that, it's about participating with everybody else on the planet. And I don't have everything figured out or anything like that. I want to be clear about that. But I just love humanity. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. But I think if you look at a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I spend a lot of my time online, um, whether it's a webinar, teaching stuff. I think if I had one skill, it's the ability to teach principles in, an, in a layman's terms that people can understand and provide things that can improve their health or improve their business. So it's a little bit of a split between those two, those two areas. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad that you said that. I'm so glad that you mentioned the service to others and service to humanity. I think that's so important to all the things that you're doing with what you've established. Tell us about the backpacking project that you have running Wealthy Backpacker. How, how does this work? How does a person travel around the world on a limited budget? What is this new world that you were, just, you were talking about just a second ago? That's a great um, question, and uh, I'll try and summarize it as best as I can. Basically, the Wealthy Backpacker was an idea that was born out of myself and one of my friends, AJ Harvey. And what was interesting is both of us love travel. Uh, we both made money not from a conventional way of business. He was a former hedge fund owner, had made his uh, killing in the markets. And when everybody was getting blown up in 2008, he was exiting the market and living around the world and carrying a couple suitcases. And that was it. And, you know, even though he was fabulously wealthy. And uh, for myself, um, I was able to build uh, an online business income that I didn't have to be in any particular location working in Panama one month and I could be in Bali the next month and I could be in Vancouver the next month and I could go visit my friends in California or wherever it happens to be. And, you know, it was a radical idea in 2005. Now it's much more common. So what happened is uh, AJ and I decided that, you know, we were really lucky. We felt we were very fortunate and we had both achieved this lifestyle from very different means where we're like totally opposite people. And I believe in partnering up with people who are uh, of opposite nature and opposite capacities. It, you do have some conflict inside of that, but that's that's healthy conflict if you know how to resort, resolve that mm -hmm. because you're, you get your own ideas and your own values challenged. And I think a lot of people in the world of social media today actually they do themselves a disservice because they get locked into groups and ideas that just validate their opinions as mm -hmm. opposed to exposing themselves to other groups or interests. So that's the one negative I think about social media is it just tends, we really deal with the confirmation bias. Before social media, I argued with all my friends passionately and I didn't think less of them. I preferred that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of sharing of ideas and the passionate sharing of ideas. And then we laugh about it and we we learn to accept and love each other for our differences and, of course, improve ourselves. But AJ and I decided to put this book together and we were going to combine two 
unique ideas. One is how do you make money online enough that you could exit your day job or your go to work job? Mm-hmm. And part two is where he came in is providing uh, investment education uh, news bulletins that would teach you the principles of investing, how to invest like the world's wealthiest people who you leverage things like hedge funds in which he owned one. Sure. And so by combining those two ideas and then also sharing with, well, guess what? You probably don't need as much money as you think you do. Uh, if you can make enough money online, get a little bit of positive cash flow, you can move to a low cost jurisdiction, very much like I did and like, like he did, and start accruing more wealth at a higher quality of lifestyle and, and investing the difference between your expenses and your cash flow. That's to make it simple. And by doing that, after a few years, you would probably compound enough assets and enough passive income that you could live pretty much anywhere you wanted anyways. But the, the key was to create that gap, to create that that area of, of resources, financial resources that a lot of people just don't have. They don't, and they don't know how to get that. You know, they're just making enough to get by and um, to opening up the world to this, what I call the digital republic, that you can live anywhere, you can work anywhere, you can communicate with anybody, you can make money online. I mean, all the, the largest companies in the world right now are online companies. I love this, this idea of traveling around the world. I mean, this for me is actually a dream thing. As a personal goal, I've set for myself to have everything mobile, which it pretty much is right now, and to be living in country of your choice, you know, like Bali, somewhere like that, and then move to a different country, absorb as much culture as I can, and do that for, you know, several years, and then sort of come back to, you know, the States or wherever I may end up. But, you know, why do you think people get trapped in the nine to five of things and have so much trouble sort of exiting the matrix? Great question. I would say um, two main things, and that is fear and identification with possessions. So how do we identify that fear? How do we turn that fear into knowledge and then use that knowledge for our benefit? It's a great, uh, another great question. I, I love your questions, by the way. Um, well, I think you have to really understand how psychology works. You need to, st- I think a lot of people focus on consuming information, but actually don't consume information to learn how their brain is. And our brains are relatively unreliable the more that you study it. So what you expose to, you tend to believe. And what happens is most of the mainstream media channels are focusing on fear. If you look at today's world, it's hard to believe that less people are dying by war than ever before. Less people are, uh, there's less crime being committed on the world. People are living longer than they have. Like, there's a lot of great things. But if you look at the news or you look at these things, you would never, ever dream that that's happening, right? right. It looks horrific and it's terrible. But the, the statistics are absolutely the opposite to what a lot of people think. Um, but our brains are wired to self-protect ourselves, to be fearful. Oh, you don't, you don't want to take that trip. You don't want to go to that place. What happens? I heard that, you know, that's really damaging over there. I heard is there's a war going over there. I heard there's crime over there. When the reality is, is that's a very small segment for a very particular time in a, in a place, but that could happen in any city. And so people develop fears and they get comfortable with their local environment because it's predictable and their brain says, this is safe, this is secure, can't imagine living anywhere else. You know what? And then it starts, what happens is we start making rationalizations, but at the core is there's a fear and we rationalize away our lives to protect ourselves. And how that ties into our identities is oftentimes, you know, where you live, what kind of home you have, what kind of car you drive, what kind of um, friends that you have, what kind of events that you go in. And, and that can come at any financial range. So it doesn't matter if you're making, you know, 20000 a year or $200,000 a year or $2 million a year. There is an identification, what I would call product line with each strata of income that just keeps you hooked into that. And what happens is we start to develop an identity around those things and once we build an identity into it you know i think it was the the russians uh way back in the 60s were doing psychological research and they discovered that the fear of death was not the number one fear it was the loss of identity huh okay yeah i find that intriguing it's really really interesting how much we can allow fear to dictate our lives, fear to prevent us from, you know, really living the life that we want. 
I think there is a, a sort of romantic notion that is attached towards traveling around the world. It is a very romantic idea to travel and live abroad. I really think that more people want to do this, but they're, they're simply afraid to. Either they're afraid or they just haven't done it yet. And it's a procrastination thing that keeps getting put off. And, and like you said, it ends up being something that never really happens. Why do you call this the revolution, the digital revolution? Why is that a term that you use so often? Well, here's the thing. If you look at how humans have organized themselves uh, over these, you know, over the centuries, um, you know, we started out at kind of tribal cultures, foraging for food and doing whatever we could. And then when the industrial or the agricultural evolution came in, we started organizing in cities and stuff because we could actually grow food and we didn't have to travel very much. And that was, you know, that caused major changes in society. And then came the industrial revolution, which changed that we weren't working on farms. We started to working in factories and machines and then, and then cities got bigger. And then also as, you know, we ushered in this last century um, with the rising, uh, the, the devaluation of the dollar and the increase of production of things. Uh, the demand for money increased. And so people started to move into the suburbs to have bigger homes and commuting and, you know, two cars and the latchkey kids. And so all of this started to change culture at a very rapid rate. Then what happened is the internet came upon us and the internet changed everything because now today you're in a living in a condo, for example, you don't know your neighbors, but you're communicating with people all around the world. Mm -hmm. And you used to go down to the, to the five and dimes store to do your shopping. Well, now Amazon has outperformed all of the retail shopping in America. They've made more sales than all of the retail shopping in America. And retail shopping in America, you have to realize, has got like a 300-year head start. Amazon has been around, what, 20 years? Has it been there around that long? <laughs> and it's like now that. completely changed that. Look at, um, uh, you know, companies like Facebook. Look at Google. Uh, the, you know, everybody Googles in a day. Everybody, you know, will use Twitter or Facebook or take an Uber. Uber is one of the big you know, transportation companies, and they don't even own vehicles. Alibaba doesn't even – they don't even own any stock. They, like, they don't own any inventory, right. and they sell things online. So we've moved into this age where people are interacting with other people through their screens, through their phones, through this digital world. And what happens is it's now – going to affect boundaries. So if you look at the tribal states, so we went to those tribal countries and then we moved into city states. And then we went into like, kind of, we tried the mega nations with the EU and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, United Nations, which has had mixed results. But now, uh, you know, where countries used to make sense because of geographical borders or because of language and customs and cultures and that sort of thing, those barriers are being tore down as those institutions, those governmental systems are trying to keep things in line, you know, but what's happening is those lines are starting to blurry. And so it's like, well, why, why do I call myself a Canadian? Why do I call myself an, or, or an American or, you know, somebody from Cameroon? Aren't I a human first? Like, aren't I really a human? And when you start to strip away these identities, you know, people ask you, where are you from? Well, we automatically start building a story about who that person is. And that's not necessarily true, but we have maybe met, you know, a dozen Americans or a dozen people from Canada or whatever. So we say, oh yeah, Canadians, they're really nice and polite. Well, I, I know some unpolite Canadians, <laughs> you know, uh, catch me on a bad day. It's me. Uh, so the bottom line is, is I think this digital revolution is you don't have to go to a job anymore. You can make money online. You can invest online. You can buy all your stuff online and you can be anywhere in the world doing it. So I think it will completely eliminate boundaries, countries, and it'll start inviting some questions of like, well, why are we fighting with each other? What other options are there? And the more that we expose each other to other cultures, I mean, think of probably what's happened in the last, oh, I would say 10 years in the world of shamanic practices. These have been going on for hundreds or thousands of years in South America. Sure. Uh, and all, all of a sudden, thanks to the internet, uh, the use of ethnobotanicals has been widespread and are facilitating um, different states of consciousness and different states of awareness for a lot of people. And that wasn't possible before 
because people couldn't get to South America or they couldn't even hear about it. They didn't even know that was there or they couldn't go to an ashram in India. It was too far away. I mean, I think it was around 1900, one of the presidents went to India. It took him six months to get there and six months to get back. <laughs> right? I can get on a plane and be there tonight. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, this isn't something that you're just talking about. It's not something that we're just having conversation about. This is something that you live and do. Sometimes we'll we'll have a brief, you know, just a quick message and I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, how are you? And you'll tell me something like, you know, I'm headed to Dubai for the night and, you know, I'll be back tomorrow or something like that. It's, you know, it's very hilarious to me because it's not usual, you know, it's, it's not something that I see with other people. And I think, you know, this digital revolution, I, I think you really have something there because there are more and more people are starting their own businesses, moving away from the corporatized, you know, culture of this nine to five job, you know, this cubicle madness where you're, you're literally going insane. And, you know, people want out of what we've been sold. And a big part of something that you're very motivated by, in my opinion, is, is cryptocurrency. And, you know, Bitcoin has been in the news for forever now, it seems like. Lately, uh, you know, Bitcoin is, has seen some huge, huge gains. I think people sometimes, they mix those two things. They, they mix Bitcoin and cryptocurrency together. And they're two, they're, these are two separate things, right? Yeah, I think if you're talking about Bitcoin, the currency, or the blockchain per se, um, I think there is extraordinary applications for both and there's extraordinary challenges for both and right now we're in what i call the 1999.com phase i don't know for those of you who weren't around and what i see a big rage in the crypto space is is particular people who may not been around in that 1999 they were just born after it or born just before it and if you remember there was all the rage about the dot-com industry and and all these different companies came into play and, and it was huge, right? There were, there was millions of dollars. I lived in Vancouver at the time. And I remember these startup, you know, warehouse offices of people and literally millions of dollars being poured into them with no tangible assets, no tangible business model, but they had a great idea and a good pitch man and that sort of thing. And these things started to emerge. And I think with cryptocurrency, I think there's a couple things that's really interesting about it. Number one is the idea of a decentralized, universal, um, and private way of exchanging value. Hmm. And, and I think where that comes from is a lot of people are frustrated with the banking system as it is and its concordant fiat currency, which drives it, and which certainly has its place and its means, uh, and certainly up to this point, I mean, it's, it's funded transactions. It's a lot better than trying to chain, you know, trade beaver pelts for shotguns. Sure. You know, um, it's a much more convenient money, you know, is a more convenient way to exchange things. And people go, well, what's the value of Bitcoin? Well, what's the value of your fiat currency? Well, the fiat currency is based on the idea that, you know, the, the bank's going to issue and, and, and the taxpayers are going to turn their labor units and turn that over plus interest to a centralized bank. In the case of Bitcoin, it is uh, in cryptos. It's like, OK, we're going to do work on what's called the blockchain, actual, uh, you know, computations by computers and that's going to be the value that has been done and blockchains are going to pop out and that's going to allow you and me to do an exchange outside of the normal currency system you know and that's really a layman's term i don't i don't want to profess that i'm an expert in cryptocurrencies or anything like that but i am fascinated by them okay. and i like the idea and i think it i think what you're going to see is you're going to see some cryptocurrency be um, put in place uh, on a global scale that will be leveraged and maybe several of them, whether that's going to be Bitcoin in the end or not, I don't, I'm not so sure. I mean, if you look at, you know, Yahoo at one time was the, the largest search engine, right? MySpace was the number one social media. Very seldom does the first one end up being the final adaptation. Yeah. And so I have a little bit of caution. And when we talk about uh, cryptos and in our investment news bulletins, uh, and AJ, of course, is, a, is an expert on these type of things. And right now it's the heady days, you know, it's going up at this exponential rate and virtually anybody, you know, gets in and they're like, I've made 200% or 300% or 500% or a thousand percent last year, or whatever it happens to be. And, and what happens is, is greed can cause a loss of perspective. Mm. 
Um, and right now, I think we're in a very speculative component. Do I think there's value in it? Yes. Uh, do I think you should put all your eggs in that basket? No, definitely not. Do, do you want to put some money aside and 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 play that game? Uh, sure. But right now, it's a, you know the applications for cryptos in a day-to-day basis um, haven't really translated into the real world. I mean, a little bit. You know, people are making some exchanges, but the exchanges are relatively slow. And, you know, there's issues that haven't been worked out. And I think we're going to run into some challenges with governments. Uh, I know that the IRS asked Coinbase recently to share everybody who's got, you know, 20,000 coins or more. Because what happens is, let's say, let's say I bought a Bitcoin at a dollar way back in the day. Hmm. And now, for whatever reason, Starbucks puts in a transaction base for Bitcoins or any commercial agency. But that Bitcoin as we speak, is worth like $15,000 or whatever. But yeah. I, I, buy my, I buy my $4 coffee. Well, under the tax laws of that particular country, I've realized a $3 capital gains here. And so this is the part that people have to recognize that it, as it gets recognized as a currency, these government agencies are one are going to, they're going to go against it. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get involved with it. And I think it's something that everybody should, you know, get some semblance of knowledge and participate on some level, but I, I don't want people to lose their minds about it because at the end of the day, humans evolve and contribute by adding value to other people. And the more that we focus on value-based enterprise as opposed to speculative-based enterprise, mm. I think the more security we actually build for ourselves because at the end of the day, if we're producing value, um, people are going to purchase it, whatever the form of currency happens to be or whatever the medium or wherever you happen to be. I love the the broadness of your answer because it leaves enough for interpretation. And I want to ask, for anyone listening to us speak about cryptocurrency right now, would you have any advice as far as you know investing specifically with Bitcoin right now and, and the price of Bitcoin? It just seems a, a bit silly right now what's going on with Bitcoin. Would you agree? Yeah, it seems it seems pretty crazy. Um, and like I said, it seems a lot like 1999. Uh, the reality is, is probably 90% of these cryptocurrencies aren't going to make it. Uh, they will fall away. Things won't work out or whatever. But there will be some that emerges and what that is. And so I don't want to give financial advice. I can't legally do that. <laughs> I think it's a, you run into trouble. But one of the things I think there's an old strategy in investment worlds, I think that really plays out well. First off, never invest anything you're not willing to lose. Sure. Uh, number two, don't invest in anything that you don't understand. <laughs> I think those are those are good rules. Uh, number three, one of the things that I do, so I'll share what I do. As I'm not giving advice, I'll share what I do. Okay. Is to I'm in a, in in a, in a particular investment. When it doubles, I take out what I invested. I, I ride that with whatever the the game was. So that allows a person with a little bit of money to kind of play maybe not even in Bitcoin, but maybe some of the alt currencies or whatever. But as soon as it goes up double, I, I pull out what my initial investment was. And, and if, it, if it rises up and if it goes down, well, you know, I didn't lose anything. So, and that was something I've learned. You know, I was an athlete and athletes, we take risks. Uh, we, we go against the odds. And thanks to AJ, uh, he was able to provide me some insight to my own biases and my own biases is I, I want to play the odds. I want to go for the win. So if I hadn't had that information, you know, maybe a few years ago, or even you asked me the same question years ago, I'd be like, yeah, go all in, right? You know, but <laughs> I'm all in, but I, I don't suggest you go all in on anything, even though that was a pathway for me and almost everything that I did. But as I move into a new season of my life, I'm, I'm looking at a little bit more defensive strategy. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I, you know, I would just suggest looking at, you know, like, like you said, alt currencies, alt coins. Wait, I, I really want to talk about, you know, none of this stuff matters if, if your health isn't on point. If, you're, if nutrition for you isn't there, then, you know, none of this stuff, you know, traveling, you're not going to be able to travel. Your investments, you're not going to care how much money you have because you're just, your health isn't going to be there. So, I mean, a big part of your world is nutrition, staying healthy, and fitness. In the way that you were competing in these athletic competitions for bodybuilding, why was that such a, a powerful thing for your life? There's a lot of reasons, and those reasons evolved over time. But I'll, I'll say when I was 15 years old, um, 
my sister was diagnosed with cancer and she was four years older than me and she was very athletic, strong and, you know, played a lot of sports and was quite successful at it. And then I watched over four years through my high school years as, as, you know, despite all the heroic efforts of modern medicine and all the treatments and all that sort of stuff, I, I watched her literally waste away and eventually die in, in, in under, you know, tragic and painful circumstances, wow. particularly for my family. And anyone who's gone through an experience of a family member having cancer can recognize that. They, they understand what that is. It's a, it's a very helpless feeling. But having that happen to me at such an early age, there was a gift within that. And the gift was as I realized that my health wasn't a guarantee. And I think so many people assume that they're going to be healthy and always going to be healthy. And it's just one of those things we put off to the side and suddenly at some point in time, Oh, I got a diagnosis. It's, it's like, you know, uh, gee, how did that happen? Well, it happened over the last 30 years of whatever you've been doing or 40 years or 50 years or however long you've been on the planet. So that had a powerful impact on me. Now, it started off very innocent and, and silly. My sister had actually given me a bodybuilding magazine. I still remember it had Troy Zuclato. Uh, Mr. K had won just Mr. California on the cover and had these two beautiful girls. And I thought, oh, wow, man, I guess you need muscles for that. And I, he looks strong and healthy. That looks great. And I started getting into Arnold Schwarzenegger as my first kind of mentor in my mind. And I read his book, uh, Education of a Bodybuilder. And he said, you know, you can achieve anything with hard work, self-discipline, and a positive attitude. And that seemed like a great idea to me. It looked like he was doing well. So I started on that endeavor to build up myself because I thought that would make me healthier and I thought it would make me stronger. And the ironic thing was, is I went off to university, studied exercise physiology, and you know, I got a good background information, but it was like all these pieces of the puzzle, it wasn't put together. And so I decided that I would go under mentorship. So what I did is I found um, one of the best coaches in the world, in the world of bodybuilding, and I hired him to, to mentor me. And that was a great move on my part. And it took me a long time to get there, to kind of suspend my ego and make that step. And when I did, it was transformational, but it also came with some challenges. For example, in 1998, uh, I went to the, my first national championship. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, after 10 years of training, I go to my first national championship and I discover essentially it's a drug cult. It, the whole thing is a, is, a, is a drug culture. So we have this look of bodybuilding, which is this, you know, these beautifully muscled men and women standing on stage and, you know, almost nothing, you know, chiseled, you know, cosmetic ideals of what we're supposed to look like but then backstage it looks like a, a a mash unit or something and so i realized at the time this is not why i got into the sport you know i got into the sport to be healthy and strong and vital and all this and i realized that at the higher levels it's become everything that i didn't want it to be that's not what i signed up for so i left the sport uh, I opened up my own nutrition store, but then I got involved in, you know, what I call sex, drugs, and spirituality, uh, basically. And my coach told me years later what it was, and he said, you actually went through a grieving process. I went in and, you know, got involved. <laughs> you know, I went through a, a, an evolutionary phase where I partied a lot and got, used a lot of different chemicals and stuff, and then had a transformational experience in 2000 that uh, pulled me out of that world. And when I came out of it, I got into meditation and uh, started practicing. And my teacher had told me that if something didn't exist for you and it was right, you could do it if you practice these principles. So I said, okay, I'll put that to the test. I became a vegetarian, said I'm going to win a national championship with no drugs as a vegetarian, and I'm going to meditate my way to that process. Hmm. And literally three years to the day after my total complete meltdown, I was standing on stage at the Mr. Universe in Mumbai, India. Hmm representing my country. And I was like, wow, this, this really works. <laughs> this really, really works. He was right. This is true. I can do this. And, you know, a lot of unusual circumstances happened to that. So uh, I started to realize the power of meditation, the power of self-exploration, the power of going inward. And today in the digital world, which everything is so outward and so coming at us, the, the stepping back and going within and realizing that no matter how powerful digital technology becomes, it cannot compete with physiology, the intuitive and emotional capacities of an individual human. And then if you can connect with a collective group of humans, literally anything is possible. But more importantly, true inner peace and true joy is possible. And I think at the end of the day, that's what everybody is really secretly craving.
You know, when you see people practicing nutrition and working on their bodies, you know, whether it's it's weightlifting for competition or or just to stay healthy, is there a fundamental mistake that you see people making that that you would advise against? Well, I've I've made all of them, so I, I could probably help people out along the way. Um, the first thing I think is rigidity of thought. So if you look in martial arts, a rigid position is a position of weakness. And I believe it is the same in every endeavor. The second we think that we know, we're in trouble. So the ability to maintain an open mind, the ability to experiment and to track that experiment, whether you are a database person or you're more an intuitive kinesthetic feel kind of person. Those two ways of interpreting how something affects your body is great. So I would say that my first mistake and a lot of mistakes that people make is they begin to identify themselves with a certain diet, a certain training style, or a certain philosophy. And what I have found is, like life, is things change. And there is an evolutionary process. The, The right diet for somebody at 15 years old might be different than 25 or 35 or 45 or so on, or a competitive-based diet, which uh, you know, I fell victim to at one time. And I say victim because I ended up becoming, uh, you know, I, I, I ran that program out to a point that caused me to be ill. Now that illness led to a breakthrough, which we can talk about, but the bottom line is when you get rigid and you become dogmatic in your belief and your methodologies, you, you, stand, you tend to stop paying attention to the red lights going off in your life. And that can be in any endeavor. It could be in health. It could be in relationships. It could be in your business life. But I think what happens is people get in there and I'm keto or I'm a vegetarian or paleo or whatever the new fad is. And oftentimes the change produces the initial results. But if you look at life, you look at everything, everything has seasons, everything has rhythm, rhythms, the, the four seasons, the changing, the night to day, you know, the dry climate to the wet climate, the hot climate to the cold climate, everything has contrast in the world that we live in. And so by staying rigid, we hold ourselves back from experiencing all possibilities. And so one of the things that I have learned to develop is to look at diet or look at training or look at anything and, and, and stop seeing the differences. But let's look at the commonalities. And from the commonalities, we can p- compile some basic tenets or some basic truths. And from that point, we can do our experiments. So what I'm hearing is to really excel at this, at anything, is to not to have a rigid stance on whatever your understanding of something may be. And to have enough of an open mind to accept, you know, the changes of things as in like the seasons and you compared it to the seasons. Is, am I close in understanding what, what you just said? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's another piece that when we're relating to diet, particularly that people make a big mistake. Okay. And that is, they assume, you know, the old saying, you are what you eat. And that's kind of become a meme that is perpetrated throughout the world. And of course, we identify with what we eat, or so, whether it's socially or physically or culturally. But what most people don't realize, it's a single canal from your mouth to your anus. It, like the, the food is in the tube. It's not in your cells. It's not in the actual body. It's not in your physicality until it goes across, you know, it goes through the digestive process and is broken down. And in today's world, I think what happens is we are chasing our tails because we make the assumption that if I eat it, it gets consumed and utilized and absorbed. And that's not the case. And what we're having developed now is we're seeing that the the fifth leading cause of death is digestive-related illnesses. And people go, was that possible? But yeah, well, the root cause of cancer and the root cause of heart disease and the root cause of diabetes, they're all traced to what we eat or what we consume. Hmm. But And some of those things can be things that cause us to be depressed. Some of those things can cause us to have various illnesses in the body, um, whether it's diabetes, whether it's heart disease, whether it's cancer. These are all related to our environment, both externally and internally. And so what we find is that getting one's digestive health in an optimal state is a key component to get the maximum benefit out of any dietary practice and also over the long term to maintain Uh, one's health 
and one's vitality is our ability to consume and utilize the nutrients from our diet and uh, to eliminate the waste products. And today we have a lot of things like, you know, chemical agents and, you know, whether it's pesticides and herbicides and plastic, they're finding plastic all in people's physical tissues now. Uh, it, you know, the, the high levels of estrogens and all the things that we genetically modified foods, all these sort of things that have been developed relatively recently uh, and our human bodies have not adapted to them. And although we have all the technological breakthroughs that life has brought to us, we see an increasing uh, level of depression and what I call uh, treatable diseases. So we have treatments for disease that extends people's life but doesn't extend their quality of life. And so for me, I want to live long and live strong. In order to do that, I have to recognize I need to put great fuel in my body and I need that engine. That digestive system is how we convert fuel into everything else in our body. That needs to be at an optimal level. And from that, um, we developed a company around that because I had that problem. In 2003, when I went to that Mr. Universe contest and everybody goes, oh, wow, that's great and wonderful. I followed an extremely rigid diet for a long period of time, 11 straight months. I ate five things and literally at the end of that contest gained 42 pounds of fat and water. I felt terrible. I went from Mr. Universe to Mr. Marshmallow and it was devastating. And I couldn't figure out, I couldn't, I was like, I've been doing this for 16 years. I've, I've got the best coach in the world. I've got the best discipline in the world. I'm doing everything I'm right. And here I am at the end of my rope. I'm having a disaster uh, from that perspective. But that's what led me to find the medical doctor that taught me about how to build the body from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. Uh, I had, had started a meditative process at that time, so that made even more sense to me on a psychological level. But then it was something I could use on a biochemical level as well. And, and you know, it's been that way ever since. So I really want to dig into your last statement there where you felt you had been doing this for, you know, 16 years or what were you doing wrong that resulted in this reaction? What happened there? A couple of things. One was an excessive consumption of protein, I think was the first thing. Number two, an extended calorie restriction. Uh, under, you know, in incredible physical duress. I mean, training for a Mr. Universe contest is an, ex you know, it's challenging and run a life and stuff. And also I would compound another thing onto that and going back to my in initial statement of the first fear because of an identification. I was that guy. I was that guy that need to be at single digit body fat percentages. I identified with, you know, being that champion, being that athlete, being best student of my coach and not listening to my own intuitive wisdom. I, you know, I felt terrible the last six months. I knew that there was problems, but I refused to acknowledge them because I was so focused that I was going to the Mr. Universe no matter what, and it didn't matter what the cost was. And, you know, when the bill came, I discovered what the cost was and the cost was my health and the cost was my happiness. The cost was all that. But fortunately, I was able to find another person to help me. And, and that's what opened me up to flexibility. You know, you will become flexible uh, or life will smash you. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Ask anybody that has kids, right? Kids change everything. Yeah, absolutely. This is why I wanted to, you know, really bring you on the show is, is such a diverse range of experiences that you've had. And there's something that I was reading about that I had to do a double take on when I was doing the research for the show. I think it was an article that you wrote called uh, What Every Athlete Needs to Know About Restructured Ionized Water. Is this yeah. an actual, this is a real thing? What is yes. restructured ionized water? Why is it so important to our health and our bodies? Well, again, this was a, a, another fortuitous discovery that I made in uh, 2007. Um, ionized water, or uh, electrically reduced water, as it's some kind, sometimes called in like scientific or technical papers, is basically a process where through electrolysis, you put an electrical current um, through water and with a device, you can separate those waters into two streams. And this one stream will be acidic and one stream will be alkaline based on the mineral dispersion. So you had a current in a negative ion. Um, base minerals will go one way and the positively charged ones will go another way. And it was discovered in Japanese hospitals back in the 60s that you could use this ionized water 
and you could treat a variety of different things. And there was a lot of different theories about why this was had positive benefits. But I will list a couple that I understand, which is now have recently been proven hmm. to be true. And number one is if you can, and I'll, I'll start on the one side that a lot of people don't start on, on the acidic side. When you create an ionized water, you'll create two sides. One will be negatively charged, which has an antioxidant benefit. And another one is a positively charged, which will be an acidic effect. Now you can make a strong acid using this water that you can kill salmonella, E. coli, MRSA, any kind of bacteria. And Japanese hospitals were using that in order to disinfect their instruments without using antibiotic or antibacterial mechanisms. And so that, that has a massive benefit to society. From a, you know, you look at hospitals today, they're the number one source of, you know, untreatable antibiotic resistant bacteria. One of my friends, Dr. Horst Filzer, who was part of the team that put the, he's a Harvard graduate and he taught at the Harvard Medical Center for 35 years and surgery, put the first stent in the body. Um, he says that, you know, a large part of people who die from surgery die from infection, not from the surgery. And so he was testing it because he thought it was, it was beneficial for untreatable wounds, uh, you know, people with open wounds and sores and all these type of things that wouldn't respond to normal treatment, so use it for that. And that's what it was originally used for in Japanese hospitals. But they also started to realize that if you drank the negatively charged ions, what happens is there was a change to the structure, a change to the charge of the water, a change to its effectiveness. And what it meant is it reduced water to a level that was more absorbable by the body. It was easier to cross into the cell membrane, so you had better hydration. And it also seemed to have a positive effect on free radicals. And that is, free radicals are the things that basically cause inflammation in the body on every level. We're all, inflammation is the number one killer of everything. It, you know, we get inflamed. Anything that's an itis, inflammation is the silent killer that we can't feel or touch, but it's part of what causes the aging and degeneration process. Hmm. And so they started using this in Japan quite widespreadly. And then later on, what happened is a number of companies sprung up and they were selling these household ionizers that you could actually turn your tap water into this. I thought it was a bunch of bunk. I was like, come on, man, this sounds really far out. Uh, fortunately, you know, I mean, really. And what happened is I realized that I had a rigid position. And I went, okay, you know what? I have a rigid position. The scientific method is to put in a hypothesis and test that hypothesis to see if it's going to be. What I find ironic is a lot of people in the medical or scientific professions quickly discount this kind of technology without running an experiment. They actually break away from scientific method. They condemn it before experimenting. So <laughs> it's just one of the, the interesting points of the world today. So I did an experiment. I said, you know what? I'm going to try this stuff. At the time, I was about 200 pounds. I said, I'm approximately 75% water. I'm going to replace, if this really is that much more absorbable and utilizable, I'm going to put a little theory that I'm going to drink as much of this water as possible over a short period of time and see what its effects on my body as it'd be like changing the oil in, my, in your car, uh, in layman's terms. Uh, I, I figured I would just flush all the water that's currently in the body and put in this new stuff. So I drank uh, an excessive amount of this water and I trained in a ferocious late, because I said, if this is an antioxidant level, this is really has an ability to absorb better. It should reduce lactic acid significantly. Hmm. And it did. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm training this hard. And the level of soreness I experience is significantly reduced to anything that I've ever experienced before. And so I said, well, maybe it's an antidote. Maybe this isn't true. So what I did is I literally re-entered into the national championships, which was only three and a half weeks later. I've been retired since my contest in 2003. This was 2007. And I was like, I'm going to compress four months of preparation into three and a half weeks. And there's no way I could possibly survive this under normal circumstances, but I'm going to apply everything that I've learned over these last four years in rebuilding my health. And I'm going to put it at a, an extremely high level, at an optimized level. And I'm going to train like a crazy person. And I'm going to see if I can produce a result that I know is not possible. And that is to get in shape for this contest and potentially win it. And turned out I did win both my classes and went back to the uh, world championships three months later and um, place better than I did the first time. And I said, okay, that's great. Now, what was interesting, going back to the book, is people got wind of this story. And as you know, when people get wind of the story, they oftentimes get it incorrectly. And so I came back, I went to, the contest was in Greece at that time. 
And after Greece, I went on a, you know, kind of a tour around Europe and ended up all over the world. And then I got back in January and I literally saw an article that was produced by a particular company and a quote about this. And, and I'm looking at this and then I, I found out from some other people, they thought I was some 70 year old guy that had went to the Mystery because he came to retirement and there was all these stories and it was just crazy. And so I called up one of the people that made the marketing brochure. And I said to him, I said, hey, look, uh, number one, I, I think this is a wonderful marketing brochure that you have. It's really well done. It's very articulate. I love this design and the color. Um, we've got a couple of problems, though. And I said, number one, you use my picture without my approval. Number two, you're misquoting what actually transpired and you're doing the world a disservice by telling them wrong information. And so he was kind of, he's like waiting for a lawsuit. And I said, look, I, I don't want you to sue. I think the water's great for people. I think I've used it in my clinic. I use it myself. I think it's got a lot of benefit. Hmm. But how about we come together here and do something of service. How about I write a book on how this affects athletic performance? Because I think it's going to be such a game changer for athletics. I think it is an unfair advantage if you're drinking this water and you're in an athletic environment, whether you're just working out on a daily basis or whether you're at the highest levels of you know professional sports, it's a game changer. So we wrote this little book, uh, what every athlete needs to know about restructured ionized water. And the next thing you know, uh, that started a speaking tour as these distributors of the product wanted me to come and speak at their local events. And so off I went again. And, uh, you know, that was the culmination of about seven years on the road where I just kind of lived around the world and I would be taken in by people and I would get on stage in front of a couple hundred people or a hundred people or, you know, a thousand people, it didn't matter. And I would share about what I had learned and I would answer questions from other athletes and, and I met a lot of great people and had an amazing time. And uh, yeah, it was totally unexpected, but it was out of service, you know, just, hey, I think people can benefit from this. And I, I saw it personally in my own life and I saw it personally in the, with the clients I dealt with. So that's how it went. And then what was recently happened is I just had a call with Dr. Filzer three weeks ago. And he also was very skeptical being a surgeon about this technology, but it had, he had found a, a significant benefit with his arthritis when he had to drink it, which is the bane of all surgeons. Hmm. He went on a quest for 10 years and, and nobody could prove that it was actually having an antioxidant effect. And he reasoned that it was because the charts that, or the, the mechanism they were using to, to measure its antioxidant effect was incorrect. And he devised a test where he could do this. Uh, he could actually measure its antioxidant effect and just recently published the data in a 100% defensible experiment, scientifically validated, put into peer-reviewed journals that has proven that this type of water increases mitochondrial energy and has an antioxidant effect in the body and is absorbed by the body and also improves red blood cell formation. All things which I experienced, but I had no way of sharing other than anecdotally in my own intuitive nature. So it was really nice to have that scientific validation. Wow, this is really amazing, really interesting to read about this, to learn about this, to hear about it from you. Wow, I mean, Wade, we've covered so much information. We've covered, you know, finance, economics, nutrition, traveling the world. You know, I, I really want to also cover, because it, this is a big part of your life, and, you know, you mentioned it several times, and I, and I glossed over it because I wanted to cover these other things. Meditation and just enhancing consciousness, identifying with our inner world, connecting with that which is inside, instead of looking on the outside for things. How does a person do that more? How, how, do, we, how do we see within more? Ooh, that's a, that's a really loaded question. Um, you know, I can only share my own experience because, you know, I, I can't always get inside of other people's heads. And I had a couple, I think, Frankly, I think I might have gotten some advantages that allowed me to discover the benefits. Number one, when, when I was 15, we moved to this very rural area. It's five miles into the woods. So I had to spend a lot of time alone without a lot of stimulus. And so without that stimulus, you spend time in your thoughts. You spend time going in, also in a very peaceful environment. Even though I wasn't interested in that at the being 15, I want to be with my friends and having fun and all that stuff. Here I am in the, you know, this pristine place. So I, I, I developed that capacity. And also when I was training, when you're building your body, that became a process where you started to internalize. So I do think that athletics gives a person an advantage that by doing athletics, you can start going within 
oneself as you get a deeper connection. And I'm not talking about putting the headphones on and going to the gym. I'm talking about actually feeling your body in itself, whether that's through yoga practice or whether that's through bodybuilding, whether that's through endurance training. You start to be aware of your breath. You start to be aware of the physicality of yourself. And then what happens is you start to reflect on that. Now, for me, um, being an experimenter as I, as I have been, and I didn't know anything about meditation or internal environments. When I was 22, you know, I was experimenting with, you know, LSD and these type of things. And uh, for whatever reason, I had an overdose at one point and uh, had the experience of dying and had the life review and experience the universe or God, however you want to. A near-death experience. Yeah, I had a near-death experience. And that completely changed my life. When I came out of that, the world seemed, you know, I was in university at the time and it, it just seemed like I was in kindergarten and people were asleep and, and I had this whole new awareness and that spawned me to, you know, get on a plane and go to Santa Monica and follow my dreams and become a bodybuilder. You know, I met Joe Goldwyn training and all that sort of stuff. So there is a pro- progressive part and then uh, that can be side effect. You know, years later when I left bodybuilding and went through that down period, again, I, I fell into the pursuit of, you know, trying all different sorts of chemicals and things like that, which you have, you know, different experiences and states of consciousness. But I got into the dark side of that. And then, you know, I had a mystical experience uh, coming out of that where my teacher appeared to me and, uh, you know, the rest, you know, told me I needed to start meditating. And I had been studying meditation from a scientific point and from a pure mechanical way with playing music and doing sensory stuff. But then I got into a serious practice at that stage in my life. And from then, the uh, internal progression over time, and it's, and it's not linear. Sometimes you go through great periods of just unbelievable realizations. And sometimes you feel like, oh my God, I'm not made any progress at all. And that is part of the journey. And that is part of the reflection. And that is part of understanding the seasons within our own consciousness itself. And so I'm not here in advocating you know, using all sorts of recreational drugs or ethnobotanicals. But I think for me, they, they triggered um, some experiences that made these kind of airy-fairy out there ideas that I hadn't been exposed to at, a, at an earlier age become real and tangible and something I wanted to seek without those, those chemical agents. Yeah, wow, that's so profound. Uh, I love that. Yeah, meditation is important, crucial. It's an everyday practice for me. Uh, it keeps me sane as much as I, I look at at it as you know going to the gym for the mind for me it keeps me in tune things are are very intuitive for me and for me to keep that compass sort of in line in check i I have to have a sort of grounded state and if that is at an imbalance or if i if i'm not taking time away and and doing that it's not fun it's important to have all these in check so that we can travel the world so that we can conquer you know all of these business ideas and so that we can be ser- at service to others is there anything that that you can add to what i just said yeah i actually i can and i think um one of the experiments and why i got triggered into kind of traveling the world i read about the the wandering sadhus in india and these people would stay and never stay in a place for more than two weeks because they didn't want to tech, uh, develop attachments and patterns of behavior or actions based on their environment. I thought, well, I wonder why they would do that. That seems pretty radical. So I said, okay, well, why don't I try that? Why don't I just go all over the world? I, you know, I had gone through a major change in life and uh, you know, didn't have any possessions or anything like that. So I was like, well, this is the perfect time to, to kind of, you know, the, the world kind of helped me let go of those by just circumstance. <laughs> and so I, I got on that path. And, you know, I can remember when you first do it, um, especially when you go to a new place or a new area, what happens is it's very disconcerting. Most people don't realize is that you develop, once you get, you know, in a certain area, you're living in a uh, place in the world that's familiar you just ignore a lot of the things that are going on your brain goes into autopilot mode and, and feeds in the data but when you go to a new place it seems there's a lot going on and you're aware of so many different things and all these trip wires in your brain start to become activated and oftentimes when people travel it can be very stressful 
Hmm. It's very challenging, yeah. you know, new cultures, language, you know, going to the store can be difficult because you can't communicate. You don't understand if the, you know, what the exchange is. You don't know the social customs, all of this stuff. And then I remember there was a kind of a breakthrough moment. I think it was about three or four years in where I realized that I could go to a new place and not be overwhelmed. And what I felt it was doing is I was increasing awareness of what's my peripheral vision. And at that point, I was learning under a, a spiritual teacher by the name of Dr. David Hawkins. And he was talking about how meditation moves to contemplation. And in the modern busy world, that you can meditation is kind of sitting in one place, but in a contemplation, you would hold maybe a, a spiritual thought or, or a universal thought or a loving thought, and you would take that and apply it throughout the day in a meditative process. So you could be going to the store and you could be kind and loving under all circumstances while someone smashes into your car. Well, are you going to be kind and loving in that circumstance or you get caught in traffic? And this becomes a, a benchmark, a contrast point to see where am I at? And again, I think that starts to bring you back in to see, am I stressed? Am I overreacting? Am I angry? Having these negative emotion states and we start to realize, yeah, I am in a negative emotion state and I can totally relate to what you said. Hmm. You know, if for some reason I don't do my meditation or I forget about my contemplation or I get, you know, out of that pattern pretty soon, it doesn't take too long. And all of a sudden I see a degeneration to my old patterns of behavior, my old stress levels, all these types of things coming up. So you know, I don't think you're immune to it at any level on the journey or any place in the journey. Like I said, it's not a linear thing. It's, there's no place to go. There's not like, oh, all this sort of stuff. It's, it's the letting go of everything, and which is kind of counterintuitive to how we've kind of set up the Western world of, you know, of more, the more monster. Yeah. And we can start to wrap up here with this. And I, I think we've come full circle with this. And, I, and I, I really appreciate this conversation. It just flew by. You know, I think for a lot of people, there is, you know, this fear of missing out. And I feel like we go through education, we go through this sort of training, and we get put into the so-called real world. And we're not given any tools. We're not given anything that is beneficial. My, my degree is, you know, a paperweight. It's it's literally a piece of paper that I, I don't think I ever used. I think all of the learning that I did post-college is where I, I developed my career, where I developed my passions. Do you agree with this? I mean, do you agree with the way that the system is set up that people are, are sort of trapped in this sort of loop, this sort of cycle of school, job, work, chase money, get married, that sort of cycle of life and death? Yeah, I, I really believe that that's why I'm so passionate about the idea of the digital republic and living in this, the new age where you can experience and express more outside of that and recapture that youth. If you look back to history, history always gives indications of the future. If you look back to ancient Greece and kind of like the great thinkers 2,500 years ago, uh, who really understood the psychology of mind. They, they talked about the connection between mind and body, the development of self-discipline within oneself. And they didn't teach just science, they taught philosophy. Science without philosophy is, can be used for terrible things. Science with philosophy can be transformative for the world. But at the end of the day, one can only apply philosophy or science to oneself. And rather than express oneself to force everybody to become like you or to you what you do, the, the better way with the great teachers of the world, where they reformed themselves to such a level they became so magnetic and so attractive that their life took on you know, a, a different level. I mean, you look at all these people that there was hardly any books, there was no internet, there was no these eyes, but these ideas and these values have transcended and developed cultures throughout thousands and thousands of years. And for some reason, in the modern world and all this busyness, people have lost the concept of self-experimentation, the, the concept of the value of one's physicality and taking it and, and creating it to be as healthy as possible so that you can experience the full range of our sensory experience, our environmental experiences, and, and then to leverage the technology of today, to take that plane trip to the other side of the world, to take that boat trip to take up the artist course, to 
go down there and drink some juice in the jungle and see what happens to you to, to go out there and, 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 and expose yourself to things. And, you know, of all the people that I've seen do that, I haven't met one of them that didn't feel that their life was enriched. Did all the things that go out the way they expect? No. Did, uh, you know, they end up having a fatter bank account? Not necessarily. Did they experience a greater level of joy and connectedness? Almost every single time. And some of the most fascinating people I've ever met were the people who were willing to let go of the status quo, the people that were willing to break free of the social conditioning that they found themselves in, the ability to not identify themselves with the past, but to learn from it and to use that as a tool to influence their present and ultimately their future. I love it, Wade. Thank you so much for being here, man. Um, where can people find your work? Uh, where can people get a copy of, of your book? Whatever, whatever you want to plug, do it, do it now, please. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, um, if they're interested in the digital republic and how to make money online to kind of finance their traveling world, they would go to thewealthybackpacker.com and you can download a free copy. Um, if you're suffering from health challenges or you'd like the next level of health, they can simply go to the human experience slash the awesome health course. We'll put that in the notes. And uh, I give away literally a 12-week health optimization course. And inside that, it's little five to 15 minute videos of everything that I've learned over the last 30 years that can enhance the qualities of one's health and vitality. And I give both of those things away for free. And the reason I do that is I really want people to freely enjoy my ideas, but not to say that they have to follow them. And, it, and I always tell people, just read it. If you like it, take what you like and discard what you don't. Apply what you think is relative to your life right now. And, and if it works out for you, drop me a line. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear those stories from people. Yeah. For sure. Wade, thank you so much for your time. Guys, we are going to get out of here. You have been listening to The Human Experience. My name is Xavier Katana. A huge thanks to my guest, Wade Lightheart. Guys, thank you so much for listening. You will hear from us next week.